welcome to episode 23 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's show, our guest is Shad Thornsbury. Shad is a longtime member of the Hunting Beast Forum and a very proficient public land deer hunter. In this episode, we focus on Shad's lessons learned from 30 years of hunting Michigan's highly pressured public lands, which include gathering intel on other public land hunters, making use of hiking trails for clean access to stand locations, and how Shad maximizes his time in the woods by hunting areas based on seasonal changes. We also discuss finding the balance between family life and hunting season in Shad's preferred mobile hunting setup. This episode's packed full of knowledge from a veteran of arguably one of the toughest places to get on good bucks, Michigan Public Land, so stay tuned for some great tips. Two quick notes before we roll into the podcast. First, I've got a new shed hunting video out on my YouTube channel, so if you're into shed hunting, I'll put a link to that one in the description so you can check it out. Second, if you haven't visited my blog or website recently, I've got an older post chock full of shed hunting tips, and I've also got a newer blog that focuses on my top 10 tips for postseason scouting. If you're looking to level up your postseason scouting this year, head on over to my blog and give that one a read. I'll post a link to that article as well. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoors store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. Sadly, hunting seasons are closed, but you still have some time before the turkey opener to upgrade your mobile hunting setup with some products from Stealth Outdoors. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, what are you waiting for? Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with the mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Head on over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the phone, I got Shad Thornsberry. Shad, we've both been hanging around on Dan Infault's The Hunting Beast Forum for quite a while now, but I don't know a whole lot about how you developed your passion for the outdoors. So why don't we start there and have you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up drawn to outdoor pursuits. Yeah, sure. It's a strange thing because as long as I can remember, my first memories in life are wanting to be a deer hunter. I don't know how that came about. I can remember it. Uh, you know, I was maybe two or three years old, and I remember looking out the window and uh, my dad coming home from a deer hunt. And just from that moment on, it always kind of uh, intrigued me. So ever since then, my daddy would take me fishing. My uncles would get me out hunting and it, it never stopped. You know, that's been my, I don't say it's like something that I, I came into or wanted to do one day. It's just been who I am pretty much ever since I can remember. Yeah. And I think I say this a lot and I know I've said it before on the podcast, but in Michigan, especially, it seems like deer hunting is more religion than it is anything else like pastime or hobby. So if you grow up in a, a deer hunting family, especially it, it seems to take hold of you early on. Yes, exactly. Yeah, fishing. My dad was a big fisherman. So actually, it's funny to think about the deer hunting because I killed my first deer before my dad did, which was, <laughs> you know, he always did it with me. He would always take me out and uh, we'd go to the state game area even when I was, you know, my earliest, like I said, my earliest memories, four, five, six years old, but he would never kill a deer. And, uh, my uncles were very good at it, but my dad, he didn't kill his first deer, I don't think, until about 90, it was about 91 or 92, somewhere in that area, shortly after I got mine. Then I think what, you know, I had uh, a lot of siblings 
three brothers plus me, so four boys. So once us boys got into it, my dad started picking it up a lot more and being more serious. Yeah, that's cool. So he was he was into fishing a lot more than he was into deer hunting prior to you guys getting into it then? Yep, he was a great fisherman, yeah, real good fisherman. Not so much a deer hunter till later in his life. Well, you talked about your dad taking you to the state game area, and that's a good segue. And you hunt a mix of public and private lands in Michigan, and I know firsthand that hunting public land in Michigan can be extremely tough. You're someone that I know has had really consistent success, so what tips could you share to help guys out there who are just getting started hunting public lands in a heavy pressured state like Michigan? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think as soon as I started driving, I started hunting the state game area by myself. And, uh, I think I killed my first deer out there in 90, like 98 on public land. I would say I hunt a mix of public and private, but uh, I think I killed like 130, 140 something deer in Michigan. And I would say like 20 of them have been on private. So most of my hunting is public land. The biggest tip that I think I would give anybody is uh, you got to take it serious. If you're going to get out there onto the public land, you're going to really be discouraged. Maybe your first year, maybe two years, you know, and there's going to be a lot of obstacles to overcome once you start excuse me once you start going past them obstacles you're going to start having success you know and when i say obstacles 99 percent of that is people oriented so give me an example of some of the stuff that you do now because like i said we all know anybody that's hunted michigan knows you can go in the off season when stands are supposed to be out and still find 30, 40 stands in a day. So what are you doing specifically or how have you learned these areas over time to, you know, because there's still deer in those areas a lot of times, but they're, they're working around or through the people. So what are you doing to capitalize on the human pressure? Yeah, that's funny you say that about the stands because uh, I just had a younger guy start at my work and the hunting public and the hunting beast, you know, they've gotten popular. So he's kind of seen some of that. And we got talking about deer hunting and, uh, we, I took him out there just to show him a couple spots and how I was doing it a little bit. And, uh, I swear we seen within maybe this small 600 acre area, there was probably 15 stands still up. So how I think I have the most success is just, number one, I just have crazy determination to, you know, not fail. So especially when I was younger, it would I would go in and it was like a, this marathon that I would just never stop. Persistence, 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 persistence. And then eventually I would, I would run into something. Lately, I think I've gotten a little maybe smarter or lazier or something as I've gotten older. And, uh, if I was to say how my season rolls through, you know, I see on the public land, October 1st, everybody's so excited to get out there. And there's two days that are probably the heaviest pressure days. That's going to be October 1st and November 15th in Michigan. So, well, all these guys are hitting these areas, October 1st, everybody's so giddy to get out there and get deer hunting. Usually my October 1st is I'm driving around and, patterning all these hunters and when i say patterning i'm taking pictures of cars you know i'm looking at boot tracks i'm looking at any type of clue that can tell me where this guy is 
And I'll do that October 1st, October 2nd, October 3rd, and hit, you know, in the county I live in, there's probably like four sections of state land throughout the county that I hunt. And uh, I'll just split up each one and start getting the, the hunter's pattern down. And I can tell things, you know, they outlawed baiting here in Michigan, of course, a few years ago, but I can tell things like, this guy's baiting because I see his car in the same spot every day, you know? So I have a suspicion that he's got a stand. That's the only stand he's on. And most of the time he'll have a bait pile there and I'll wait for a, a moment that I don't see him there. And then I'll go in there and check it real quick and just see what he's got going on. You know? So I'm really focused on learning where all these guys are at. And then what I do from there is I start looking to where I can get in that the guy's, aren't hunting some of the other clues i see is like license plates up in the county i live in we have like three car dealerships so when i'm seeing license plates coming from the suburban uh, detroit area that tells me the guy's probably a weekend warrior or you know he's driving shortly after work so i can get a time jump on him there's all sorts of little tricks and tactics i used to squeeze in between the other hunters and gain any type of advantage I can because really on the small public I'm hunting you can't ever get away I know you know that from hunting uh, over on this side of the state it's not an option of getting away it's an option of finding your sliver to get in there and get on some deer yeah exactly and that's why I was asking like what are you doing to to figure these guys out and you gave some great tips there and it seems like to me or my experience and I'm sure you'll back this up is once you figure out where that pressure is, the deer kind of fill in the voids where the pressure is, and that's where you want to get in, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. And once you learn where the deer bedding is, then everything is rotating around that. So particularly in the areas I hunt, there's only, you know, I, I see like Dan and Fault's hunting like huge swamps in Wisconsin. You know, you see these swamps, he's driving, and they're, thousands upon thousands of acres I, guess, I would guess some of them you know some of them 500 acres the whole section of woods that i'm hunting are maybe one mile square or two miles square and in that two mile square it's like large open hardwoods with potholes of bedding areas so once i figure out the bedding then i figure out how the deer are moving from bedding to food or bedding to bedding then if I get on a buck, I'm going to knock that buck down quickly because I know he's only in spot A, B, or C. You know, if I catch him, if I catch his track and I catch his rubs and he's running a certain pattern, eventually I'm just going to get in there and run right into him because he only has five, six options of where he can be. Yeah, so that's something that'd be worth talking about on Michigan public land where it's heavily pressured those open areas i'm assuming generally you're avoiding those right and you're just focusing in on those bedding pockets so for somebody that's newer to hunting public land in michigan especially uh if if it looks like deer habitat on tv like meaning like oak hardwoods or mature timber that's a good area to avoid yeah exactly everything that you would think's good from what you learned from magazines and tv you might as well throw away <laughs> because everybody else is thinking the same thing. You know, it's funny the area I hunt it has like uh, it has some egg fields that the DNR plants crops in, and they rotate them every year. And how I look at that area is I I never hunt it. It's not even an option because 
the first place every hunter that comes into the state game area is going to go is to that food. They're going to be like, oh, there's corn right there, and I'm going to go over there and kill a deer. And it's funny to watch them guys line up on either side of that and all around it. I have snuck in there long time ago when I was on third shift and killed some deer, but it would be like midweek, you know, Wednesday after three rainy days when nobody's been out and them deer would get a little uh, pressure off of them and then they would feel secure enough to come in there. But them spots I don't even, I don't even deal with because how I look at the public is that there's a few guys out there that I know that have been putting the time in like I have and they got some years under their belt and then there's the same rotation of new people every year. So I'll run into them same four or five guys. We'll talk. And then everything past that's different. So the people are always making the same mistakes over and over and over. And then that allows me to pick and choose what's left over. And that's where I find the bucks. And we talk about like betting. I wanted to go into uh, a 2020 buck, which was a nice, nice mature eight point. And I had a nice big drop time 10 come through that same spot. But how I killed him was I watched the guy hunt that spot. And I wanted to get in there because I had had good success there. Like 2017, I killed a good buck there. So I watched that spot and this dude in this Cherokee was parked there every day, parked there. I would drive by on my way home from work, state land, 17 minutes. So I can leave work, get to state land. <laughs> 17 minutes and this is the first spot I drive by when I go into the woods. So I'm watching him. He's there every day at uh 4:15. So one day I got to jump on him and I got in there a little bit early and he come in and uh when he was not happy, he seen out something I could hear him yelling and <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh yeah, he wasn't very happy. Well, what that allowed me to do was see where he was setting knowing in my mind i'd already got in there and scouted the beds out i knew how the bucks were using the terrain because i'd killed one in there a few years before and i seen he was setting back too far so again i backed out and i let him have it and i let him have it so you're thinking you know this guy's pressuring this spot since opening day and he's walking in walking out walking in walking out time changed and something happened where he must not have been out uh, able to get out of work in time. So I started leaving work. I have the ability to kind of shift my hours. I started leaving work early after time change and he wasn't there. So I moved right in and I set up an ob observation type uh, stand because I could sit back and watch this bedding area and see how all these deer were coming in and out on either side of it. And that first night had a real nice buck come through. So the next time I hunted, I moved up and got to where I thought I could kill him. And I was sitting on a ridge and he come right by me and just the angle of my shot being on the ridge, he was down on the low and I ended up missing him. And I think I posted about this on there, hunted it again. <laughs> and he come through again and I didn't get a shot. So I tweaked one more time because how he was coming through was he was uh, following this real high ridge line and it would drop down to the edge of a uh, cattail marsh with a little beaver pond or swamp down there and he would never come out into the open woods he was only sneaking over that ridge and then dropping into the cattails to where he was going through a small section of open woods for maybe like 30 yards and then he would use the cattails to move up to the cornfield at dark time and uh i think it was i think i hunted it 11 days in a row and i've seen him 
I had to have seen him five or six times do the exact same thing before I finally tweaked it perfectly and caught him uh, coming down. Actually, he came out of the opposite side. There was another little bed over there, and he came out the opposite side and was trying to go back up, and I ended up shooting and killing him. But that's the difference is that this guy had hunted it for basically the entire early season, and he was off by just enough that he wasn't wasn't catching the movement. You know, and I, I came in there and took advantage of it as fast as I could. So I've got a bunch of follow-up questions on that story. Good story, by the way. So first of all, when you started hunting, what time of the year was that? End of October, early November? This would have been early November. So I think I had, uh, I think it would have been like November, don't quote me on it, 5th or something. 5th or 4th I started hunting was my first hunt. And I killed him. I was going up north to my property, leaving that Friday to go up for deer camp for the gun opener. And I killed him the last day that I could hunt. I shot him. I think it was the, I think it was the 13th or 12th or something like that. Okay. Getting into the the main part of the rudder, you know, heavy pre-rut anyways. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that was interesting to me, so obviously this guy was in there quite regular. I'm assuming you saw him or knew he, was he in the same stand or was he in a climber or something? He had a climber. I actually talked to him this year. It was kind of funny. I I met him this year because I tried getting back in there and we, sat and talked he had an old lone wolf uh sit and climb yep do you know or do you assume that he was hunting the same tree every time you went in there well i think he was he was hunting off to the uh left side down the valley so he was hunting yeah like almost the same area i don't know if he was in the same tree or not but the same area he was always to the left what do you think were the differences? Obviously, he was making some mistakes because you killed the buck and he didn't. If you were him or you were his coach, what would you have told him to to do different? Or what, what did you do to have the success? Number one, I would have went in there two times of the year that I would have tried to really – well, there's three times a year that I would have felt I could have killed that buck. And actually, there was a real – I think you might have seen the video on my other page, but I had a real nice drop-time buck in there too. And – I think he was over hunting it for sure. So, you know, your his option to kill that buck would have been like October 1st, October 2nd, and then get out of there and wait for him to start moving. Because at that point with them first two days or first three days, you're just pressuring him and, he, and he's patterning, patterning him. So all he started doing was using the safest route he could, the buck, you know, using the safest route he could to get in and out of there. So it, I think he just over hunted it for sure. That's an interesting answer because I think what I heard you say is you hunted in there 10 or 11 days in a row. I'm assuming from what I know about you, you were probably adjusting each sit though to different winds, different access. So tell me about that. What were you doing and and why were you moving around? Yeah. So my first time I sat way back, you know, they talk about observation stands. I sat way back because I figured from hunting it in the past that they were going to be coming over that ridge and dropping into the swamp. So I didn't want to make a mistake that would be fatal to me by going by making a a bad adjustment or going in too far and pressuring it because my access was it's so bulletproof to get in and out of there because there's a human trail that that gets uh you know people are walking on it all the time so I use that as my main access and then it's just like right off of that I drop down to that little spot so my first time I sat I was probably 200 yards off of where I was suspecting him to come, but I'm telling you, you can see for 
I don't even know, five, 600 yards when I get up on that ridge. I can see for a long ways. When I seen him come through, then I adjusted and I was too high on the ridge. Then I moved down to the edge of the swamp. And when we're talking about wind, this is what was weird was they could not, even with the bad wind coming right at my back and blowing right into the cattails, they couldn't smell me by how they, it was either like going over them just uh, a little bit or it was rolling there doing something because they, he never would pick me off and I was blowing it right to him. And then how I lined it up was like so perfect that almost like a T, you know, like a 90 degree that by time, if he ever did come across and catch my wind, it would be right in the perfect shooting lane. And that's how I killed him is he, when he come from the other side, he came right down and teed up right into me and I ended up shooting him right in front of me. How it laid out was so perfect that they, I don't even think they ever smelled me. And I killed that same buck there, 2017. I, I had a story on them too. I shot him twice. I shot him October 10th, I think. And I was up high on that ridge and I, I had to get off that ridge because I, that was the second time after I missed that buck. I was like, I'm hunting too high. So something in my trage- trajectory is tra- uh, changing. I had to get lower. But uh, I shot him the tent and hit him high in the shoulder. Well, you, it looked like a perfect shot, but it must have deflected. And then it came out his armpit on the same side. Oh, weird. Yep. I stuck with it because I kept seeing his tracks after I wounded him. I kept seeing him tracks, but it was the same way. I had to be so patient because there was uh, gun hunters coming in, you know, and guys hunting it. And so I could never get back in there, but I would pop in there occasionally if we would get a snow or something and I'd, I'd catch his tracks or if we get a rain, I could see his tracks coming up over the ridge. And I did the same thing. I waited and I waited and I waited till everybody gave up and it was uh, December 20th. I ended up killing him with my muzzle loader coming down the same bedding area out of the same, pretty much the same tree, except I shifted off to the right side of the ridge because I figured when he would come out, he was really going to scent check that ridge the best he could after getting wounded on it. You know, so he came in and that's exactly what he did. He came in and he lined up with the ridge and followed, followed it down towards me. But I had my scent going off on the other side. And it's the same way. As soon as he got to where he was going to cross into my scent, I ended up shooting him and killing him. I think that's uh can be. Let me preface this with can be. That can be a great time of the year to hunt because it seems like in Michigan, the two big days, it's like you said, opening days, which, which is November 15th every year, opening, you know, the first couple of days. And then you usually get a little flurry around Thanksgiving. A lot of people like to hunt around Thanksgiving. But after that, I mean, there's guys that muzzleloader hunt, but man, it seems like the pressure really drops off a cliff. And if you get some good cold weather around Christmas, you know that, like you said, 20th to the end of the season, that can be some good hunting in Michigan. Yeah, that's some of my favorite time. Now they kind of changed it where you can hunt with uh, guns and all that, you know, the whole late December. But pre all of that, it was it was my favorite time of the year. That buck I shot in 2017 that I shot twice, it was like three days. I have this rule of like three days of bad weather. If I see December and we get a terrible snow and then some rainy, nasty sleet and anything that'll keep guys out of the woods, that to me opens up so many possibilities because I know them deer are really getting relaxed because nobody's out there hunting. And that, that strategy's paid off a lot for me of, really paying attention to a, a good long stretch of bad weather and getting in, in there and hunting them during the rain or the snowstorm 
or anything like that where I know guys are not not out there. So are you hunting like the last day of bad weather or the first good day after the bad weather? Yeah, the last day, the last day of bad weather. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, like I said, that'll uh, definitely keep most of the fair weather hunters home. Yep. Well, let's move on to trail cameras. What does your trail camera strategy look like? For public land, I've been hunting it for, let's say, 30 years or so. Uh, I've probably had a trail cam on public land for like five days out of 30 years. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't use them out there. I don't know if it's paranoia of getting them stolen or, you know, I just don't feel like I really... I really need them out there in my head. I think like, why would I want to get a picture of a buck when I could kill him instead? You know, like there was actually a post the other day, a guy on there talking about getting daylight pictures. And that's just how I think is like, if I'm getting daylight pictures then I'm going to be there with a bow in my hand or a gun in my hand and kill him with that instead of posting a picture. Now on my private behind the house here, I play with them just because it's like so simple to go out there and throw one in an apple tree, you know, and, and, uh, leave it back there. But I can't say that it's ever been really a intricate part of my strategy. Okay. And one thing I do know about you and, and you've mentioned it here already is that you've hunted some of these same public lands for 20, 30 years now. And obviously yeah. I've talked about this with some of my other friends. When you first learn about the hunting beast, you want to go out and you want to find you know beds on 100 different properties and you're going to hunt 20 or 30 or 40 different spots in a season but i think it's easy to skip over learning an area intimately and it sounds like a lot of a lot of your success and you know you're not using cameras is from knowing that area and the pressure so well correct exactly years and years and years of scouting and hunting the same stuff and finding certain patterns and uh you know they they seem to repeat themselves. How I look at it is I have, if I have a hundred spots that I know are going to pay off, I'm looking at out of them hundred, which ones aren't getting hunted and then waiting for that time. Guys say this so much too, like particular time of the year that I know things happen in these spots. You know, there's spots that are going to be October 1st, maybe to the 5th. And then after that, they're done. And then there's going to be spots that are going to be, you know, the, the lull area spots. And then there's going to be the lockdown spots. And then there's going to be the pre-rut cruising spots. And then there's going to be the late season spots. So I have them all broke up into my head of when they're going to pay off. And I'm just looking for breaks or an advantage or any time that I can get some type of success at them spots you know usually like i said again all uh depending on people for sure and i guess one of the follow-up questions i've got is you've obviously learned a ton of this about your own areas through trial and error but if you could say or if you could point out any similarities let's say you're talking to me and i don't have this experience that you have and i want to say well shad what what do some of your good early season locations have in common food <laughs> acorns and not even really corn they don't really start hitting the corn till a little bit later if i was to be targeting a early season buck i'm really looking at acorns and security bedding something where he can get in there and be really safe then what the early season bucks to me are a lot trickier than the rut cruising bucks because these they're 
they're the ones that they're not moving till the last five, 10 minutes of, of daylight, you know, so I can get in on them spots and I have pretty good luck of having encounters, but man, them ones are, they're tough to kill because they've already been pressured by goose hunters, uh, squirrel hunters, you know, the youth season guys out scouting, yep, youth season. So them, the early season bucks to me are, they're way, way, way spookier out there. But yeah, I keep, I would key on thickets and acorns. Like a lot of times it's understanding like how a certain piece of terrain lays out to, you know, like, uh, there's a couple spots that it's just, that's how the deer, if they come out of a swamp, they're going to come out of that swamp and come into this valley. That valley protects them from sight. So just by watching them, I've seen them do it. Like they come out of the swamp here, they walk up this valley, then they find this little thicket that has like just a little bit higher stem count of saplings in it. And they'll travel into that down into the next valley, you know? So it's all these little intricacies of knowing them little spots. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I took my cousin out the last few years and he's been hunting with me. And years ago, my uncle, my uncle Bruce hunted with me when we very first started and he had a great spot on this swamp and I never really go to it too often, but I knew it. I'd hunted it a little bit after my uncle Bruce quit hunting and uh, I tried putting my cousin on it, but I never walked over there with him. So I kept saying like, Ken, you got to go to the valley where the thicket and the swamp meet up and it lines up where you can see this valley, you know, and he's like, okay, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. Finally, after like three years, I, I'm like, you're, I don't feel you're in the right spot. So what was it last? No, the year before last, I'm like, I'm walking over there with you, Ken. So we walked over there, you know, and he was like maybe 150 yards off of where it needed to be. And we walked up there. I showed him it. There was deer tracks. Everything looked good. And he went out the next day and killed his first buck out of that spot after trying to get on it for three years. So that type of small detail knowing precisely what they're what they're doing coming in and out is is extremely key and that doesn't matter if it's early season mid-season late season they're gonna follow them little secret travel corridors and little hidey spots any time of the year when they travel through there yeah in the valleys that's a good point because like you said obviously it keeps them out of sight but then another thing on the evening hunt that's where all the thermals are collecting generally. Yes. So th- those those make real hard spots to hunt because you need to be close enough to intercept them or be somewhere where there's not a valley and your scent's pulling up and and still be able to see them. So, I mean, they're, they're using them for a reason. I want to take a quick break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2 pound package including the fastening strap. Huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with over four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does it all without compromising strength or durability. 
The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details or to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and talking about thermals, that's probably one of the biggest things that I pay attention to is thermals because hunting these very small potholes, you know, these swamps that I'm hunting, they're not, like I said earlier, they're not uh, 500 acres. They might be an acre or they might be two acres or they might be a half acres. They're just tiny little areas of, uh, of thickness with maybe some water in them. Some maybe not, but they're very small. And a lot of them are at the bottom. If they are wet, they're going to be at the bottom. So I think a mistake a lot of guys make, and I've actually seen it. I've seen it this year is they want to get right on that trail coming out of that bedding area. Like, Oh, there's a trail. I'm going to hunt it right here. Some areas you can't do that because your thermals, that area is so protected by thermals. You have to back off of it and maybe get up to the ridge and off to the left or off to the right a little bit. They're that bulletproof to that deer that the second you crest that ridge, he's going to see you, you know, trying to get down in there, he's going to hear you. And then 100% he's going to smell you. What I also see is that a lot of these areas, they have that trail lined up and that's your thermal pooling area. If you're floating your milkweed, that's exactly where it goes is right into that deer trail. And then down into that swamp. So it's almost impossible to get down in there and set right up on them. You have to be be off, uh, off and up a little bit. Yeah. Bunch of good information there because I think you're right so many times and often, I mean, I know it's happened to me a whole bunch. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's happened to everybody, but if guys that aren't having the success so many times, the hunt's over before you even get started because your access blew it or the thermal switch right before the deer movement starts and then they wind you so they don't come out that side of the bedding. Like you've got a, a lot of that stuff comes with experience, but you can think your way through that. And like you said, well, what's going to happen if I'm set up next to a swamp on a slope? Well, when it starts cooling off, your sun's going to go right into the bedding. Yep. And I think having that knowledge really is, I think, really increased my success. It's funny looking back into the really early years of my state land hunting, you know, back then it was the bait pile thing in Michigan you know it's just the culture of how it was so when I started hunting that's what we did you know and it did not it was only a year or two where we figured out like this is not working you know it'd be like October 1st oh I got 10 deer coming on me October 2nd three and then that was it you wouldn't see nothing again for you know two three weeks maybe it'd pick up a little bit pre-rut when they start moving and then for the rest of the year, you're, you're getting blanks. If not a fawn here, they're coming. But how we broke that and, you know, being like getting mobile, even before all of this, I never heard of Dan and fall till, uh, like 2008 and John Eberhart and all these guys. So I'd been mobile for a good 10 years before they were even a thought in my head. But that getting mobile opened everything up to me so much. And I can remember like, buying my first climber from probably Kmart or something. I don't even know where I got it, but it was this big steel, heavy, big old heavy thing. It had to weigh like 35 pounds. And that was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I remember opening day of gun season that year that I bought that. And I had shifted off the bait pile 
And uh, I was hunting this ridge, and I come out, and we had gotten fresh snow that day. And that that day, deer had come through this little thicket into this little trail that I'd walked by probably, you know, who knows, 50, 60 times hunting that same spot and never noticed it. And that point right there, I think, opened my eyes more than anything because that same night I went, or the next day or whatever it was, I went, the next time I hunted, I went back there and killed a buck out of that spot. And that really was like, okay, now I see what we got going on here. Just that one thing clicking in my head of catching that trail that you can't even see it still to this day. I walk by it and it's actually one of my favorite spots to hunt. I've killed at this point now, I don't even know how many bucks there and does, but a lot of my kills have come in that general area. People still walk by it and it's right off the human trail. You know, literally they cross the human trail and then cut into this thicket and they hug the inside of it and then go up following a ridge into one of them swamps. Yeah. Perfect transition. Cause one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is overlook spots. I mean, overlook spots get a ton of press on the beast. My experience has been that they're pretty rare, but they do exist. So obviously you've run into one or two on public land. Talk to me about what kind of ingredients can produce an overlook spot. Cause they can happen anywhere. Right? So what are you finding? What, what's the overlook spots? Anything that people think is too small. I would say that is overlooked. And if I, Jeremy, if honestly, if you came out with me one day and I showed you where I've killed some of my biggest bucks, you'd be like, no way. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, a few of them, honestly, I've shot standing on the people trail. You know, when we talk about like bulletproof access in and out, there's nothing more bulletproof to me than a human trail because I, I'm leaving nothing. You know, I'm leaving what every other person is. So when I can hike up into these spots and these main trails are breaking off into side trails and then that side trail happens to line up perfect with like one of them valleys connecting to a swamp or even if there's a swamp right off of the side of it, them deer are setting up monitoring, you know, people moving up and down that trail certain ways and they just feel safe, not necessarily walking down them, even though I do see them walking down them, but they feel safe like crossing them super quickly, you know, and getting across to the other side. So yeah, that would be one of my favorite overlooked spots is someplace I can get in and not have to go into the woods far. There's another spot that I hunt that's like an island, kind of a, a peninsula that goes up and it's got some houses on it. And the main trail goes, you park at these houses and you walk down and then you walk into the woods and this little tiny little bump of land is off to the, off to the side that nobody pays attention to because they're all walking up into the deep woods and it isn't even that big, but them bucks all bed right next behind them houses, right on the backside of that little tiny bump. And, you know, same way I'm hunting right off the people trail, that spot I'm probably 50 yards in, I would guess, but it's just how it lines up so perfect that everybody just walks by it. Nobody even pays any attention to it. Then when we say like overlook spots too, again, it's a rotational thing. So I'm looking at overlooked this year, you know, or overlooked for late season or overlooked for early season, anything where uh, for some reason, the people rotation, people aren't, aren't getting there and hunting it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in two ways it makes sense 
I think of a low pressure area. You can think of that like weather or low pressure, whatever. It's like a vacuum. Wherever there's low hunter pressure, it vacuums the deer in, it seems like. Yep, yep. Now, it's funny you, you mentioned the houses, too. One of the places that I hunted in Ohio, a friend of mine had permission, and it was an agricultural area, but there was a subdivision in there. And one of my friends, uh, one of our trips down there, I want to say this was 2016, Shot a buck, not the ideal shot, end up hitting it in the neck. Uh, that's a whole other story. But we tracked this buck for like eight or 900 yards, and it went 50 yards behind these houses for a long way. So that kind of opened my eyes, too. Is like, you know, this buck's wounded. He's looking for a secure traveler out. Look how close he is to these houses. Now, it's yeah. a nicer area, and I think it's older folks, you know, not a lot of dogs. So, you know, the area matters, but that was eye opening for sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, even that, because the buck I killed this year, I killed on behind my house. And I'm out there. I, I decided to do something a little weird this year because I had bought the property up north and I bought, you know, property behind my house when I moved in here. So I had never really hunted it. I petered around back there on days that maybe I could got home late or something. I shot a couple of does, but I've been doing a little habitat work and planting trees as I lived here. It's going on, I think, eight or nine years now I've lived here. And, uh, you know, it just is getting a little bit better. So this year, coming into season, I had a hernia surgery two two years ago or something. I don't even remember when now, but it was a couple years back. And for whatever reason, I was having some complications with, like, the healing and the scar tissue. So sitting in a tree stand was really bothering me. I was like, man, I don't know if I can spend the whole season in the state game area this year. I hadn't got to the doctor yet and figured out what was going on. So I decided kind of to focus on my property behind the house. And I only own seven and a half acres. It's very small. And uh, I got back there, you know, I've seen a lot of does, but I killed that buck back there, opening day of gun. And then I started having tracks coming through. I kept seeing a good set coming through every time we'd get a snow and this buck is literally coming through my backyard behind my camper coming down my mowed trail back to my blind and he's circling around my blind like every time he would never go in front of my blind circling over to the south side i got a edge row of uh pine trees there and then going into the back of it and bedding in this bramble thicket so i ended up kicking him up and then i was like okay i'm gonna put a cam out here so here's one time i did use a cam it wasn't two days later i got this huge 10 point <laughs> coming nice. through my back yeah yeah man and i think i could have killed him but i was out of tags it was like december 29th and i'm pretty sure he was right back there if i'd have switched over to the other side i would have had a chance to get on him so hopefully he's there next year but the point of it is that you know nothing is too big or too small and I don't even think, like, I have houses surrounding me. My neighbor's got a boxer that barks 24-7. And then a neighbor that lives next to him, his kids, I'm not even kidding you, this whole deer season, every day as I'm out there, are driving side-by-sides and tractors and quads up and down the driveway. And my other neighbor's a farmer to the north, so he's out screaming at his dogs and chickens and goats and banging pots and pans <laughs> and all this yeah and i just sit there like okay but it never seems to affect them they know that that little thicket seven and a half acres is like a sanctuary to them and they even there the lady will be out screaming at her husband it's dinner time and i'll have one sitting there in my uh food plot yeah like so it all 
goes into what they feel is safe to them. You know, the funny thing about hunting back there is it's the same way. I have my access set up to where it's super bulletproof. So I'm just in and out to my blind and that's it. I don't ever go beyond that during season very, very rarely. So everything stays safe and uh, it just lines up that them deer, you know, they know that they can hide in this thicket over here and they can hide in this thicket over here and I'll never bother them. But if they catch my wind, let me tell you one thing. If I hunt at bad wind and that I'll have them deer come in to my food plot and smell me, I will never see that deer again. And I know them all by heart because I watch them all summer in my yard and everything. I'll know almost all the deer by heart. They smell me one time in my blind. They won't come back. Now, if I'm out mowing my lawn, playing basketball with the kids, doing whatever, they don't care. It's like they know my lawn. And I'll come in and they'll be in my yard within 10 minutes. So very strange. Yeah, well, they know where you're supposed to be and where you're not supposed to be, just like the human trails on the public. Yep, exactly. Well, you kind of touched on this already, but talked about hunter pressure. And one way to avoid hunter pressure is to own your own land. You also talked about you recently purchased some land. And one of the things I love about hunting in Michigan is the deer camps. It's an awesome tradition. So talk to me a little bit about your experience hunting your own land, your new land, your deer camp, and what kind of habitat work are you doing in there? Oh, yeah. This is like my dream come true. (laughs) Uh, It is. I tell you, I worked hard to get there. So, yeah, I picked up some property up in Masaki County. So it's in the Northwest 13. And uh, we got, I got 25 acres that butts to literally, I don't even know, thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of public land, you know, within driving distance, short driving distance. So it's pretty good. So right the last two years since I owned it, we really focused on getting the camp situation set up which was it had an old trailer on it we gutted that down to nothing you know down to studs and repaired it and then redid it put a wood stove in all that good stuff this year we finally got some blinds in mainly what i it's just been wood cutting you know clearing lots and now i just got to where the actual camp is set up and uh we can sleep like five guys in the trailer camps all cleared out we can pull a camper in and turn it around things like that we got a good fire pit so this year actually i'm going up this weekend which is going to be phenomenal and uh we're going to start working on the back side where the blinds are and we're going to uh just start clearing some lumber for some food plots i got one more stand i want to get up so we'll probably put that up and that'll give me four stands on the 25 acres that's probably all i'll do for that but uh, habitat-wise, really, I'm gonna go slow, and I'm just this year. I'll probably put in some uh, like cereal grains. I think I got some uh, winter wheat and and some rye. I plan on putting that in, and then clover, and do some soil tests and soil work, and try to build it because it's all big woods up there. Sure, it's uh, yeah. There's <laughs> you go for miles, and it's either pines or like scrubby scrubby oaks. You know, jack pine, scrubby oaks. Uh, popple thickets clear cuts things like that yeah the area that that i hunted on i mean it's eastern side of the state i know you said you're in the the northwest 13 and for people that are listening that don't know well i don't remember what year but michigan implemented a antler point restriction in the northwest part of the state so 
have you seen while well, you've been hunting up there or have you seen other people how's the quality of bucks up there has that helped in your opinion i talked to a neighbor guy he said they pulled a couple real nice uh booners out the year before last in the general vicinity i have not seen anything to say that it's great yet we killed six no we killed five up there this year not we killed one buck in uh four does up there the buck was about 16 inches wide and about the size of a pencil around (laughs) so and then last year it was like spike 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 and then the same way we seen a a basket something so i have not yet but I have not got up there to put the scouting in yet either. Like I was saying, everything's been uh, camp work right now. You know, anytime I get up there, it's just so much work to be done getting the camp ready. So this year I'm pretty excited because that's what we're doing this weekend. We're going up to get some uh, boots on the ground. What we did figure out was it's kind of where I'm at. It's big woods, but if you go into the uh, western side a little – ways away of the county it gets a lot of agriculture and we started really keying on that and that's where we had some of our success this year was focusing more on public that butted the agriculture and the deer sign went through the roof um we didn't get on any monsters yet but like i said i haven't got the time to get up there and really really scout so my objective is to kill big bucks up there so you know it's uh, these next few years is is going to be putting in a lot of scouting work and starting to figure that out now. Yeah, knowing what I know about Michigan and the weather, that's a lot of lake effect snow on that side. So I would imagine that being that far north that there's probably some yarding behavior or whatever. So, Yep. Actually, my property is a yard. Oh, well, that's awesome. <laughs> Should make for good muzzle. I haven't loader. even got up there. Yeah, I have not got up there and hunted December yet. I'm usually tagged out, so it's i'm gonna have to slow it down a little bit the funny thing was this year i went up there and i had a few of my cousins and friends with me and you know they're all shooting there i didn't shoot anything and they're like oh come on shad's not gonna take one home and i'm like well i'm not real worried about it I, we came home friday i killed that 10 point behind the house saturday morning nice <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. but uh you know i had already had three or two yeah in the freezer at that point in time so i wasn't so concerned about it speaking of time like myself and most other hunters whose last name is not drury or lakoski we've got day jobs and as far as i know you've got a wife and some kids too so what tips would you give to people and how do you fit in your scouting your habitat work working on a camp into such a busy schedule number one i gotta keep my wife happy so my wife is uh she's not really outdoors outdoors woman she lets me hunt she knows that it's who i am so you know i don't get too much flack about it but i also know where the line is you know if it's thanksgiving i'm gonna be at her family's having dinner not in a tree stand somewhere if the kids have uh they're grown now actually and just last one kind of moved out so but you know same way if it's dinner with the kids and girlfriends or whatever then that to me is always going to take precedence over hunting. So I, uh, I expect that she's going to give me my time. I'm going to give her her time and give the family their time. I've learned to be a little bit more efficient. I, when I was younger, I would hunt every day 
every day, every waking second I could. It was all I thought about, all I wanted to do. So having a little bit of a little bit of a different mentality about going in and being more effective at it. And I, I have kind of a thing in my head that I want to be done. I always say done before gun, done before gun. So I put that pressure on hard them first, you know, four weeks, five weeks. And then after that, I, I taper it off with work. Yeah. That's the one thing that gets in my way. I really <laughs> want to retire. Yeah. That one kills me, but, uh, I, I got a, a good job and I've been there since the company started. So I have a little bit of a leeway to do things a little bit different. You know, I wish I could get out at two, not four. That would help me, but it is what it is. We, I can't survive if I ain't got a job. It's pretty tough. It's <laughs> <laughs> not an option. No. So I, I kind of hunt around it. You know, like I said, at my, the nearest public 17 minutes away from my shop. So the early season's no problem at all for me to get out and get into the woods after work. Believe it or not, I don't really, I give the weekends to the wife, you know, maybe I'll hunt a Sunday evening when everything's done, but usually I'm doing family things on the weekend. So most of my hunting is happening after work. That's something I haven't really talked uh, with anyone about yet, but I used to think that I needed to be in the woods for an evening hunt. Let's say October 1st, you know, it gets dark 7.30, quarter to 8. I used to get in the woods like 2 o'clock, which looking back at is hilarious now. So it sounds like you're you're getting a lot of hunts on semi-constrained time in the evening. Yeah, so to- you know, two hours. Yeah, you know. and that's something, like I said, I haven't really talked about it. Anytime you're in the woods, uh, I mean, that's when the deer move. It's a little trickier to get in, but how, are you doing anything different to, you know, to sneak into those areas that time? Or Yeah, for sure. Yep, so what I do is I have spots that I call, like, low time spots and these spots are going to be mainly I've scouted them and I have them in my arsenal four times that I can't hike in a mile or hike in two miles or you know there's no way I can get out with two hours of uh, daylight left get there put my climber on my back and head two miles in I'll get back there and have 30 minutes to hunt so I'm focusing at that point quick access you know places that i can get into super fast and again high success type of areas i've never tried to hunt anything that i think is low success or something that's gonna cause me to have a hunt ruined by people or dogs or horse riders or whatever i I try to always focus on what i feel is going to give me the best percentage of a chance to kill something that day yeah for sure that makes sense. Got to be, uh, like you said, getting older, smarter, getting efficient. While we're talking about public land, we both know that the odds of tagging a truly mature buck every year in Michigan are low, you know, year after year after year, real tough. So with that fact in mind, how do you go about setting your goals for each season and how do you define a, a quote unquote shooter buck? Yeah, I'm really strange when it comes to this because I have like peaks and valleys I will define a shooter buck on whatever I want to kill at that point in time. Fair enough. Now, if I'm looking, right, if I'm looking for something, if I'm like this year, I'm going to really focus on killing the biggest buck of my life, you know, then that's what I do. And I stick to that goal, but there's times in my life where things happen. And like this year with the hernia surgery thing, I knew that I wasn't going to be out on state game area doing what I did last year or the year before. So if I would have, hunted state game area i'd have probably lowered down to you know like a four on a side or something like that i'm not extremely picky 
I'll shoot does. I don't really care. So it's always like for me, if I get on something, then it fires me up and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And then that kind of gets me wanting to, uh, past things but it's weird because i'll do that for a year or half of the year and then all of a sudden i'll be like yeah i need to get some meat in the freezer and then i'll go out and kind of shoot whatever i want so and i feel that sometimes the big buck thing you know the pressure of that and wanting to be successful and wanting everybody to think you're a big buck slayer or whatever it kind of gets to the point to where it's takes some happiness out of the the hunt for me you know I hunt because I enjoy going out and being in the the woods and I enjoy the serenity of the birds chirping and the sun setting and, and all of that stuff. So a lot of times it's not necessarily a big buck makes me happy. Just being in a tree stand makes me happy. Sometimes I hold out for them. Sometimes I don't. When I do, I get pretty focused on it. When I shot the big eight two years ago, I passed. I probably passed 25 bucks, you know, year, year and a half old, uh, a couple of little two and a half before I ended up tagging him. But that's how I was doing it that year. That's one of the things that I love about hunting is it's an individual pursuit or sport or whatever you want to call it. And you can make up the rules for yourself every year. Right. You, like you said, do you want to yep. shoot the biggest buck of your life? Maybe you want to shoot something with triad equipment or you want to shoot a late season doe, whatever it is, you know, it's just like, I like to keep it fun too. Yeah, and that's exactly it. You know, it's funny because some of my most memorable hunts are the hunts that I consider the the funnest ones were maybe sitting in a blind with my cousin and shooting a five point, you know, together. That means more to me or that little uh, scrubby little buck my cousin shot up at my property. Like a first buck on the property means the same to me as my biggest buck on the wall, you know, because it's a accomplishment. So things like that, I, I break it up into different different plans and different aspects of what I'm looking for. I try to stick to the four to a side. I try to, but can't, I can't make any profit. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I hear you. I've been guilty of the same thing. You know, sometimes it's like, Oh, I'm just having fun today. And shooting that, de- shooting yeah. that deer sounds like fun right now. So. Yep. Sounds like fun. I have noticed since you've been on the beast, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, we both went to Dan held a scouting workshop. I believe that was 2016 in Michigan. And I know at that point I'd been on the beast maybe a year or two. I had shot, I think the year prior, I actually had like my first really good year. I got three bucks in 2015, two in Michigan, one in Ohio. And so I was like kind of starting to get it, but it wasn't all the way there. And I took a lot away from that uh, workshop personally. So Talk about your experience there. Did you have any aha moments and how did your hunting change after that? Um, yeah, that was kind of different for me because I kind of stumbled into Dan like 2008. So I was a little bit ahead of the game at that point in time. Another guy, you know him from uh, Hunting Beast. I was on another forum, you know, and I was like talking about public land bucks. And he was like, well, go check out Dan and fall. At that point, he was on uh, another forum before he started the beast. So I found, I found him there and that really, I bought the DVD and that really kind of kicked me into understanding the betting. I had so many pieces already in place at that point in time that when I watched that DVD, it was just like, okay, okay. And I just ran with it instantly. And I'll tell you the first hunt I went out, I watched that DVD. The first time I hunted after it, I had a nice mature buck come in and I, uh, 
I still have the ding in my bow. It's sitting right here and my stand missed him because I shot. I had to like crouch down and I slammed my lower cam into my shooting arm on my stomach. Oh, no. Missed him. Yeah. <laughs> still haunts me to this day. He's one of them ones. Big, thick. I don't know what he was, eight or 10, you know. So it clicked instantly. So by the time we got to that workshop, I had already had a, a lot of the a lot of the stuff in my head. I just thought it was cool to meet them and get all the Michigan guys together. 100%, it's upped my success for sure. Just Not just him, all of you guys on there, all of the guys that, you know, every little tidbit of information that I can find that gives me some type of like, okay, yep, I can, I can figure that out. It helps me. Yeah, for sure. I say it uh, often. I was the world's worst deer hunter when I started. Then I read John Eberhardt's books, got a little better. And then it was funny because like the year before I found out about Dan and the hunting beast, I want to say 2011 or 2012, I actually bought a lone wolf and sticks because I had a climber before that. And I wanted to start hunting some areas and I was like, man, I can't get in these areas. So I bought the lone wolf and that was funny. Cause like the next year I found out about Dan and how he was hunting. I was like, Oh, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And then it's been a game changer, man. I hadn't killed hardly any nice bucks before I got on the beast and, and I've got several cents. So for sure big difference yeah i think yeah i have uh i'm running out of space on my walls honestly so <laughs> that's a good problem to have <laughs> yeah you know the last uh i'd say the last five five six years i've had pretty good success been blessed yeah just so much information you know and the the, the early days kind of petered off lately i don't i don't go on the facebook page but the early days the amount of great hunters that were on there and the amount of great tactical talk was just amazing. I mean, you could just go on there and get lost and you could still search for it these days, but it's like you're hunting big woods, you know, there's five big woods guys on here that know what they're doing and and pay attention to them. You know, you're hunting, uh, this type of train. There's five guys on here that, uh, are hunting that type of train. So yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of beast tactics, that's something I want to talk to you about specifically. You're a little different when it comes to mobile hunting. Uh, most people these days are using a saddle or a lightweight stand, like you know the B stand and the B sticks. But you prefer a climber generally, so I got a couple of questions on that. First, are you picking out climber-friendly trees during the postseason scouting? And if not, if you're doing like a hanging hunt, how do you find the right tree that's going to work for you? Yeah, again, I'm I'm an oddball when it comes to that. There's a couple reasons. I do own sticks and stands. I got uh, some Hawk Heliums and a XOP uh, Air Raid, I think. I got a Hawk Helium stand, and then I got some saddles. I kind of have everything. So there's a place for all of that. But down here, I don't have the need for it. I tried it. You know, I got on the hunting beast. Everybody's like, oh, I buy sticks and stands and this and that. I tried it. I got sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> I got uh, 15 feet up. And I'm like, yeah, in my climber, I can go as high as I want. And uh, a lot of guys say they bang them and they're noisy and they probably are for them. But I've been, I have the same climber I've had since I think I purchased my summit like 2002. So I, it's, I still have the same one. I just kind of redo everything on it when it starts wearing a little bit. And I got it all stealth stripped and I just know how to use it. I know how to position it. To not make noise climbing the tree, I know how to get the cables. I could set it up blindfolded. Literally, I can take it down in the dark and by feel, put it back together. And, uh, you know, I have a couple little 
hitchy mods on how I pull my bow up with it and things like that. So it's what I'm comfortable with. I have a bad back too. So hang-ons kill me. I cannot sit in them for more than a couple hours. I can do all day sits in my summit. They don't even phase me. So down here, I will switch between that and I have a lone wolf hand climber, which I also have the sit and climb top on it. And I'll use that if I'm going into something that I know is going to be really thick and I don't want to get in there and bang around. Or if I'm going in deep blind where I don't want to carry a ton of weight, I'll switch to that. But I do the same with my summit. And I'm a bigger guy, so I'm like 6'2", probably 240, something right now. The weight doesn't bother me, really. You know, you figure I'm, if you break it down in percentages, I'm not carrying that much weight to my body percentage. So it's just something I'm comfortable with. And uh, I don't, I do pre-scout. Again, I've been hunting the same areas for years. So most of my spots, I know right where my tree is and it's there and it's, uh, I know my shooting lanes, everything. I don't go in and cut shooting lanes. I don't do any of that. I'm just always looking for the perfect tree. If I go in blind with the climber, I always try to challenge myself every year to go to a spot I haven't hunted before and hunt it just so I'm always learning, you know, so making yourself uncomfortable is how you get comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm always trying to challenge myself. So I just kind of have like a system. I'm always using my mapping. If deer hunting were a drug, you know, I'm seriously addicted. (laughs) So the mapping thing is I never stop. I'm on hunt stand or, uh, Cal Topo or whatever, like at least four or five times a day, always looking for the next best thing, either here or even up at my property or anywhere in the general vicinity. So if I'm coming into something new and I have it mapped out in my head, like this is where I think I'm going to have good buck activity. When I get to a certain distance from there, I stop and I'm just at that point, I'm making very, very small movements forward and what I'm looking for is my tree and how the land lays out and where I can where I think I can get a kill shot you know I don't like just rushing in like oh here's where I climb the tree because what I find when I do that is I'm 10 yards off or 20 yards off you know so I really like to slow down and be patient and start scanning and I only (laughs) here's another crazy thing I only hunt white oaks that's it so if I'm hunting down around home, I'm looking for a white oak to get my stand in. I don't like red oaks because they're slippery. I don't like popples because they're slippery. So I'm always looking for that perfect. I'll hunt the, uh, what are like, like wild cherries. I'll get in them occasionally or uh, pines if, you know, pines are pretty soft, but mainly my tree of preference is white oak. Huh. You must be talking about red pines, the tall skinny ones. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Huh. White oaks. Yeah, you would think like, oh, that's handicapping him so much, but I don't feel it does at all. I mean, down here where I hunt, they're all over, you know, it's a probably a, a blend of like 75% reds and 25% whites. So they're all over. Yeah. So it's, I never feel like it's like difficult for me to find the tree. And even if I do have it, I'm not afraid to get up eight feet either. You know, eight, I can kill a deer at eight feet as easy as I can at 30 feet. So that's something else I wanted to ask you about with the climber, and uh, you kind of talked about it when you were when you were talking about the deer you killed where you were on the slope and you think the wind was blowing over them. Are you hunting always real high, sometimes real high? How do you pick how high you're gonna sit? I prefer, yeah, yeah. yes, I prefer twenty five to thirty feet. Oh yeah, so so very high by a lot of standards. 
Yeah, and sometimes higher than that, believe it or not. It, sometimes I get down and look up and be like, oh, wow, I was way up there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the big advantages of a climber. It is much faster and easier to get up to a, a good 20, 25 feet plus. Yeah, and like John Eberhart says, I and I have, I practice no scent control at all. I'm in the Danning fault. I work in a greasy plastic shop. You know, I'm, I'm a development engineer, so... I'm working on mills and lathes and uh, getting dirty and presses and all this. And I go right into what I wear. Lots of times I don't, you'll see in my pictures, I got like my Vintec shirt on and, you know, that's what I'm hunting in. So I don't practice any scent control. And I rarely, very, 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 very rarely ever get busted by wind. Yeah, I think that being high definitely helps in that regard where a lot of times you get up, yeah. get, get up a little higher where the wind's more consistent and just either, like you said, when you're in bow range, it's either blowing over the deer or it's blowing up and away mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And the other thing I think too, is, uh, when you, you know, it's kind of weird to explain it, but we kind of hit this time in our hunting, you know, where you just get so, I don't want to say I'm a great hunter. I'm a, but I get, I'm so efficient at understanding what is happening around me that when I go in, I pretty much know where my deer are coming from, you know? So I think that plays a lot into it too, that I'm set up to where I don't expect anything to come in from behind me or from the side. I'm only focused on this one general area to kill deer, you know, and usually I'm killing them as they come out of there. And as they're coming right under my stand, you know, most of my shots are 10 yards, 15 yards, even with rifles. It's like, I don't even know I like my guns, and that's probably why I use them, but I still hunt the same way. I'm always still right on them when I shoot them. Well, yeah, and I mean, especially in Michigan with all the pressure, it's, you're going to find them in areas that you could kill them with a bow because it's thick yeah. areas of cover, and that's where they're at. Yep. So, well, One more question on the beast tactics. So obviously you've got a ton of experience pre-beast, but being mobile, and now that you've been using those, what would you tell a guy that's in his first or second year trying out these tactics? What have you found to be the most important? And also, what's been the most overhyped part of the tactics in your experience? Uh, whew, that's a great question, too. I would say if I had to, if a guy was coming into hunting, and this is actually some of the advice that I give, is get the, get the marsh bedding DVD. That'll break everything down, and everything comes off of that. Whether you're hunting cornfields or you're hunting uh thickets or whatever all of the kind of the root information is in in that dvd so that would be the biggest thing is get under and basically it breaks down to understanding where your your deer are bedding that's going to be number one i think in my book funny thing is what are some of the overrated tactics is focusing on bedding too much you know in my opinion trying to get there where i'm at i see how dan does it you know he's getting in these larger swamps and he's actually focused on the bed in the area you know like i was saying earlier i can't necessarily do that because these are smaller potholes so i'm just a lot of the times like okay there's a pothole the buck if there's one here he's going to be betting in that pothole because that's where he's got to be you know because it's it's uh so small and there's 10 or 20 of them in this chunk i'm hunting so something is leading me to get to that pothole whether it's again time of year or sign i'm catching it like tracks coming out of a certain area where i can uh i can pick him up 
don't focus like you got to get right on the bed and hunt them. Pay attention to everything else that's going on because some of them I've killed coming out of the beds. Some of them I've killed far, far, far from bedding. I think a lot of the, I don't want to say myths because, you know, I hunt a certain area and I'm sure everything else is different. I know it is just from my property here to up north, it's different. But the thing about that buck's going to be gone, you know, he'll be in the next county. I don't find that to be true at all. I, I find them bucks have a home range and they're going to stick to that home range. And all they're going to do is learn how to manipulate around you. So don't ever think the buck's gone. And I made that mistake, uh, 2016, I got on a good buck and I seen him and I was like, Oh, I, he's done. And I never went back to the spot. 2017, I got up in there scouting after season and the area was just shredded and it wasn't shredded when I hunted. So that told me that that buck never went anywhere. 2017, I killed, I don't, it wasn't the same buck, but I killed a 13 point using that same pattern because I stayed focused on him. I seen him in that same swamp again. And then I had some, uh, there's like a sand trail the human trail comes out and it's a big sandy curve right there and them deer always cross that sand trail so if i'm seeing large tracks there i know that that buck is using that bedding area well i tried i was hunting him i was hunting him i had a couple encounters with him and then all of a sudden his tracks dried up in that sand area and i wasn't seeing him so what does that mean right somebody killed him or he moved so there's also this weird pattern of like october 20th area i start seeing scrape lines open up in certain areas when the scrape lines open up on the human trails it tells me that those bucks are cruising and they're using this particular pattern to get to swamp a and swamp b and i ended up killing him them scrapes opened up and i was like he moved from there and he went to the little bit deeper bedding area in the middle of the woods and i hunted it and had him come in uh it was like a monday i think and he was with the doe and I could hear him grunting past the two and a half year old. And I was like, yup, he's using that thicket. And I waited till the next cold front and the correct wind. And I went back and tried to position myself to getting to uh, come through that thicket again. And I had two hunters move in on me. So it was like 530 already. I got up, repositioned myself around the front of them to where I was in front of them. My wind was kind of blowing back to them got up in my stand and it wasn't 10 minutes later he come through chasing the doe and i shot him at uh on the human trail at 40 yards <laughs> that's awesome coming into that thicket on the other side yeah so yeah don't focus and that was probably 300 yards from a bedding area you know but it was the right time of the year it was rut he's chasing the doe all the factors led up to he was running that pattern so you know don't always say you got to be on a bad bedding plays into everything big time because they're going to be moving to and from it but there's a lot of daylight activity you know not centered around bedding yeah for sure i would agree with all that and one of the things you brought up there it's interesting to me too is you know you talked about deer don't normally abandon their home range but you will see sign dry up in certain areas and that's something i found to be true is like if you especially if you've pressured an area or you've got busted it's like that deer usually doesn't disappear or move substantially far away and one of the things that 
I found interesting when I talked to Dwayne Diefenbach. He's the guy that runs the Penn State University. Yeah, I studies. love that podcast you had. That was great. Yeah, and he talked about like early and late season, you know, you might only be looking at four or 500 acres for like 90% of that buck's activity. The rut, obviously, it gets bigger. But if you don't see that deer in, let's say, the 40 acres you've been hunting him in, he's probably not as far away as you think. Yeah, and what I find, too, is there's certain setups I have <laughs> – uh, when we were talking about this earlier last week, I was telling you about the two bucks, 20 years apart thing. There's certain setups that are so bulletproof that I believe them bucks will always, they will always be in the same area. And the, the eight point I shot last year. And then the one I shot in uh, 2000, whatever it was, 17, we're out of the same area. And that main core bedding area is in a, unhuntable spot so it gets zero human intrusion to it and that lines up to where a it allows these bucks to get some age on them and b it keeps them always in the same area you know so that spot will pay off if i can hunt it and people aren't keying on it i can probably hunt it every year until they sell the state game area and it'll it'll play out the same the bucks i shot 20 years apart that spot is like a river it's a two mile hike from the parking lot takes me a long time to get there (laughs) and i'm getting old let me tell you my calves and everything they burn by the time i'm getting there if i'm carrying weight so it's a long hike but by the way the crows fly you know it might only be like 400 yards but it loops you have to loop around the river and then come into the backside and then it lines up to a big old swamp on the other side that is protected by water you know so it basically creates an island of bedding that has the road on the other side has water that people can't get through then it has the river and then it has a uh, private land so it just sets up like this perfect little little island of stuff nobody can get to and them buck, the buck I shot, it was uh, 2000, no, 1999, I shot him out of that spot. And then I never hunted it for years because it was such a long hike. And uh, I decided 2000, when did I shoot him? 2019, I'm looking at the rack on my wall right now. I, I was having a kind of a rough year. I moved into a new area. There was a ton of good buck sign, but I could just not get this buck down. It was so thick in there. I'm still trying to kill him. And uh, I was like, all right, I got to do something different. So I switched it up and I was like, I'm going to go back to that spot. And I went back the first night, seen him, did the same thing. I waited like four or five days till everything lined up with my wind and cold front again and killed him on the next hunt. You know, same exact, not the tree, the tree I changed, but the same exact pattern, same exact trail across the river in the same exact spot as I killed the one 20 years earlier. Yeah, man, it's awesome when you find those spots and you just know, one, I usually know now with experience, when I find them, like, oh, yeah, this spot's going to produce. And if it does, like you said, without any major changes, you know, logging or selling the property or whatever, it's like that's going to produce year after year. I really key in on things like that, like little secrets, you know, something that gives me that advantage of that buck has some type of false sense of security. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't been in there for 20 years, he doesn't know you're coming right. back. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, prob- probably nobody else has, or very few people either. 
Oh, well, I shot him and the guy had a tree stand within, uh, I was looking at it when I shot him. So, oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry, buddy. Yeah. Sorry. Not sorry. You know how Michigan is, you know, how there, you don't go anywhere where somebody's not hunting it. Yeah. It's pretty rare. Real rare. Well, I want to wrap up with uh Shad, I think you are a great hunter and you'd probably clean up on an out of state hunt. Have you been on an any out-of-state hunts and if not do you have any bucket list hunts that you want to go on here in the near future um yeah i'm not sure we talk about it occasionally me and my hunting buddies uh we were looking at for my cousin's 40th going and uh doing like elk or wild boar in texas or something but i can't say i will or i won't i did hunt montana probably early 2000s went antelope hunting out there that was a great time i got some family that lives out there so you know that's possible option in my future but really when i was in montana antelope hunting this is weird again all i could think about was getting back to michigan and chasing white tails <laughs> so yeah it was a strange thing no i know it's not i, I know a bunch of people like that you yep. they especially i think in like the first year or two if you travel and you're not very confident in the area and it's like foreign a lot of people want to be like what am i doing here i know you know, 10 areas at home, I could be knocking the buck down right now. Yeah. Why am I out here? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, you know me a little bit from the beast and whatnot. I have so much fun where I'm at, you know, my season isn't just deer season. You know, my year goes like, uh, if we started in January, I'm ice fishing. And then as soon as snow melt comes off, I'm scouting and I'm working on my property and then it's steelhead fishing and then it's smallmouth fishing, and then, uh, you know, it's into food plotting and all that stuff on my properties as the summer goes on, and then we start into rabbit and squirrel hunting and goose hunting, and so, excuse me, I have enough, I feel like, to keep me entertained around here. Like I said, I'll never say never, but I'm pretty content with uh, just the Michigan outdoors, you know, I, they keep me well entertained. Oh, yeah, and I tell people that all the time, like Michigan for an opportunity, especially if you're an all-around sportsman like like you are, where you do some fishing, maybe you do some bird hunting and the deer hunting, like the, Michigan has a ton of opportunity. Yep, I love it. Even if we ain't got the monster bucks like Iowa or anything, you know, I got enough to keep me well uh, satisfied, I guess. For sure, and and I was kind of surprised from being from Michigan, going out of state, Michigan has really good numbers of deer you know like you said the age class might not be there but the first time I went to Ohio I was like where's the deer at? You know, I, <laughs> when you do see a buck a lot of times it's bigger but it's like you could go a lot longer without seeing deer at all you know does or anything oh yeah especially where I'm at in southeast Michigan I mean the other day just driving home you know we had that snow melt started getting some uh, warmer weather so the ground cleared up and every field man it had, they had 20 or 30 deer you know it's insane around around here especially the private land uh, you can shoot a doe like my cousin he's got a little 15 acre <clears throat> spread just a little bit north of me i don't hunt it very often he does but uh like it's 30 deer a night you know 30 does you know yeah so yep. yeah we got a lot of uh if I go up north now to my property, we'll be lucky to see one. You know, the density is so different. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, hey, Shad, I think that's uh, all I had for you today. So I want to thank you. Appreciate you taking the time and coming on. And I'll turn it over to you if you got any final words. Uh, well, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I guess uh, just leave it with this. You know, if you're, uh, if you're looking to hunt public land, 
you want to get on it and you want to take it seriously, just, you know, put your heart into it and uh, don't get discouraged. All that stuff will go away as you learn and your uh, success will come if you, you keep striving for it. That's definitely one thing I learned is if you focus on something, you know, you can accomplish it and achieve whatever you want. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Chad. Appreciate it. Yep.